Are you the organ grinder or the monkey? I'm the reporter. I'm the monkey. This is the Extra Hot Great Podcast, episode 271 for the week of October 7th, 2019. I am hot type in the gutter, David T. Cole, and I'm here with reluctant whistleblower, Sarah D. Bunting. So off the record is a thing. Clickbait bitch, Tara Ariano. Can you even believe the things I say? Tell everyone. And closing cliche, Daniel McEckern. What comes next? Only time will tell. (laughs) (laughs) Welcome to Extra Hot Great. Joining us is our old friend, Daniel McEckard. Hello, Danny. Danny. Hey, everybody. Before we get to our topic, um, I want to just say at Dave's request, uh, Dave had minor surgery last week. He is fine. Uh, He had a thing on his knee the thing is gone um but he is still on painkillers and uh that is the reason that if he in the what follows here seems like he's working on one quarter speed it's because of the codeine hi dave hello tara (laughs) fight me Uh, I had to go get a David Kane this weekend, and watching him walk around with it is not unfunny. Sorry. It's sort of giving me a glimpse into what my life will be like from now on, I guess. Anyway, <laughs> we're not here to talk about da- that. We're here to talk about Press, a uh, British miniseries that has been imported from Britain to PBS's Masterpiece. It will be airing on Sunday nights. The first one uh, aired this past weekend. If you missed it, you can catch it on your PBS app. Plot summary is, I mean, it's hard to get into it after just one episode, and we'll try to keep this spoiler-free, although we, Dave and I at least, have watched ahead. Uh, it's the story of Holly Evans, who is a newspaper reporter and an editor at a paper called The Herald, which is very obviously supposed to be The Guardian, literally across the street from a tabloid uh, called The Post, which is literally, which is clearly supposed to be The Sun, and is edited by a guy named Duncan Allen, played by Ben Chaplin. Uh, the two papers are in constant competition. They obviously have very different, uh, political leanings. And so we go inside both of the papers and see how they break stories and, you know, the classy way to cover something versus the way that actually makes people buy papers in ways that are bracing and sometimes very depressing. Um, I, I, after we'd watched a couple, I noted to Dave that it reminded me of State of Play, another great British, uh, miniseries, six episode jobby. That was turned into a movie a few years ago. Um, and this feels like a show that will definitely get lost in the peak TV shuffle, but I think it rewards the time that you spend on it. Uh, before we get into some actual plot stuff. Actually, be- before we get into that, can we disagree that anything that is now six episodes long is, in fact, a jobby? Okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Sure. Um, before we get into the plot, let's just go around and say what we thought of it. Broad strokes. Danny, you are a former newspaper reporter and the most qualified of all of us <laughs> to talk about this. So go ahead. I w- was not aware of this show until you messaged me to ask if I wanted to come on and talk about it. But after you told me about it, I was excited to watch it because uh, I will watch anything journalism related because mm-hmm. there isn't really a lot of it. Yeah. And I was hoping that this would be better than the newsroom uh by virtue of it not being the newsroom <laughs> um and it is it's it's much better than the newsroom 
I had some issues with it, some that are journalism related, some that are uh, plot points that I don't think you need to be a journalist to find a little head scratching. Mm -hmm. Uh, I only watched the first episode. I didn't want to accidentally reveal any spoilers. So I so I only watched the first episode. I will watch the rest of them because it looks great. It's um, it's well acted. I'm that particular kind of North American idiot who finds it hard to <laughs> judge something where people speak with British accents. You know, it, it, <laughs> right? it, yeah. it, it all sounds like Shakespeare, uh-huh. uh, uh, but I enjoyed it. Um, obviously, a real day in the life of a news editor, Holly Evans, would be too boring to portray for a six episode miniseries mm-hmm. um so are there there are some uh liberties taken uh but i'm happier to watch a show where liberties are taken for the purposes of drama rather than for the purposes of allowing you know will mcavoy to sanctimoniously pontificate and monday morning quarterback the news industry right so mm-hmm. uh this this was about what i was expecting about what i was hoping for and um uh, I'm looking forward to watching the rest of the series. What did everybody else think? Well, you know, you're talking about taking liberties. One of the liberties it took that at first kind of made me purse my lips, but I'm like, actually, this is working to the show's benefit. And that is this. It pays lip service to being in the internet age, but the show yeah. is really written as if the internet didn't exist and has sort of destroyed the ecosystem of newspaper publishing. Like, they are playing it as if the Herald is on the ropes and the sun is doing somewhat better, but both are not really making buckets of money. But when you sort of like that doesn't really play into the mechanics of the show. In my notes about halfway through the episode, uh, it takes that long before you're aware that the internet, internet actually even exists in this universe. It's clearly set in the present day, but at one point I wrote in my notes in all caps, internet question mark. Cause there's, yeah. there's a plot point involving an MP who the, these 30 year old photos of her uh, topless have, have surfaced and she's negotiating with the, the bad paper um, about where the placement of the story is going to be. And, you know, Ben Chaplin, the editor wants her to do an interview. And if he does an interview, then they'll push it inside. And if she doesn't, they're going to splash it all over the front page. And meanwhile, she goes over to the good paper, and it turns out that the good paper already has the story up online with the link to the photos. And that was, I think that was the first instance where, you know, I was i was almost starting to wonder if, if we were in a reverse, like, Black Mirror episode where the internet doesn't <laughs> exist. Yeah. And yeah, it, that didn't make any sense to me in terms of why she was negotiating, why was she, she was bothering bothering to negotiate this deal with the other paper when the story was already out there, already online. Yeah, I feel like they could have set this whole uh, show about 20 years in the past and had it made like a little more sense because it really does ignore the internet for the most part. So that is a little unrealistic. So why not just rewind time a little bit to where you can get away with that historically? Yeah, 20 years ago is exactly where I pinned it. I was working in newspapers then. And newspapers did not know how to deal with the internet then. Um, and that's why newspapers are closing left and right. I mean, I, the first two newspapers I worked at uh, after I graduated from university, they don't exist anymore. They just yeah. closed up. So I, I found myself wondering a lot during this the first episode about the economies of the newspaper industry in, in uh, England. 
Sarah, what are, what were your big picture thoughts about? Uh, oh, well, about the they had a line about about that. That's like you're supposed to be better than the internet. That's the point of view. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, this it, that line would have played way better if they'd set this in 2000 yeah, or sure. 1998. Um, my big picture thoughts were pretty much identical to Danny's. Um, there is a lot of um, exposition and like sort of chautauquas on the state of journalism and the compromises that journalists and editors are making um, delivered to like um, via various like cub reporter um, figures that are like our Virgils into uh, these issues, which I don't think anyone necessarily needed the help with, but because (laughs) they're delivered in British accents, they go down easier, Mm -hmm. but these are, issues and it is well acted and it's well cast um ben chaplin is basically the british patrick fishler and he's like he's perfectly cast even though it's kind of like okay like here's the old saw about the hard charging like why do we always end up alone like oh god really like Mm -hmm. do do we have to do this this is like the cop's (laughs) wife who's like you're never home like oh my fucking god he's a cop don't you watch tv don't marry a cop then um, just as Danny fit in a drive-by of the newsroom, I will fit in a drive-by of that trope. You're welcome. Hmm. Uh, but I watched two episodes and I found it compelling. I enjoyed spending time with these people. It did make me miss the hour. Yeah. But a lot of things make me miss the hour. Like anytime I see a woman in a high-waisted pleated pant, for instance. <laughs> so, but I, I liked it. And you can kind of rely on, um like be productions at least to actually be a jobby you're welcome dave mm-hmm. thanks and leave it as a jobby and not big little lies it if it does well so yeah yeah I, I mean i liked it yeah we watched four um i think we'll finish it i i liked it too it's it's compelling and uh it does build to a much bigger story that's all i'll say about it that later on in the series that's like much more interesting and pits the the two papers against each other in a much more aggressive way. Dave, did you have anything to add before we get into some more deep plot things? It doesn't all lead to there, right? Like there's a still like, like at at the heart of the show, it's just about two neighboring newspapers that live on the same street divided by a moat that is uh, inhabited (laughs) by a coffee stand. And like, it's just like, two different ways of doing business, you know, compare and contrast. I really am just very interested in how the newspaper is run and the decisions they make day to day, depending on what they're reporting on. Like in the opening uh, episode, there is a storyline about um, this soccer player who's died and the parents don't realize that one of the reasons he was being bullied was that he is gay. And then, the reporter from the bad newspaper who is sort of new to uh, the job is sort of being pushed towards confrontation with the parents in order to get a better story. And he's sort of wrestling with that and the good paper doesn't really touch it. So there's a lot of things like that, bear and contrast that are very interesting. Uh, and I kind of felt like, the show did a really good job of that without making like the big important earth shattering story. If they don't solve this crisis, then the world will dissolve, you know, like it's not state of play in that regards, you know, like I feel like there's a whole bunch of vignettes to this series that are compelling and it does work towards bigger story, but 
the bigger story isn't the show, which I like. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, Danny, you alluded to this earlier that the Holly Evans character is a deputy news editor. And if it really followed what her real day was like, it would be too boring. But I think the way the show kind of gets around that is that it portrays her as being a frustrated writer who's been promoted to the editor job, but doesn't really like it. She misses reporting on stories. Did that ring true to you? Or did, does that feel like a cop out for me to say that they're, that's how they make her character compelling? No, no, no. That's that's a real thing. I no, not that many. I don't. Well, maybe some do, but I don't think a lot of people go into journalism wanting to supervise and manage. Mm-hmm. Everybody that I went to journalism school with wanted to be a writer, and that's what you do. You know, eventually, you know, if your papers aren't closing wherever you go to, you you move up and you become an editor. But then that becomes more about management uh, than it does actual writing. And that that felt normal to me that she would be itching to get back out there. She did a lot of other things that I thought were ridiculous, but that was for like what. The, well, the, the the plot in the first episode, uh, she's trying to get information about a hit and run in which a woman was supposedly struck by a police car and the police are covering it up. She goes to the scene with a reporter uh, and they're looking for the CCTV footage and they find out that the folks over at the bad paper, the Post, have it. So at that point, she knows that, you know, if if the if the police car hitting the woman is on that video then either the post is doing a story or there is no story. Uh, I mean, we, we do find out that she's got more motivation than just the story. It turns out by the end of the episode that this woman was her roommate, but she, she winds up button, uh, buttonholing the, the editor of the post and just straight out asking him for the video. There are some aspects of that that didn't make sense to me in terms of the timeline, because he, he alludes to the resources that he put into getting the video. So then I found myself scratching my head wondering, well, then people at the Post have this video. And like I said, either they're working on a story or they're not. So I, I, I don't understand why then he just emailed it to her. I mean, he's, he, we learned that he's more complicated than just the bad editor at the bad, at the bad newspaper. And he's got his own motivations. But none of that made sense to me oh and when she did that too she she outed a source like she got the the guy at the coffee van to text her when the guy was getting coffee at the coffee van so she could she could ask him for the video and she just straight up tells him that the guy at the coffee van gave him up which you're not supposed to give up your sources that's not how that works well also aren't they they're across the street from each other you've probably fucking seen this guy four days out of five yeah. it's not like he wasn't in a safe house right like it, that that seemed unnecessary to me <laughs> yeah also also just tell him it was your roommate like i found that reveal a, a, a little american mm-hmm. <laughs> honestly it was like oh don't be so piloty I've only gotten into, I've only watched the first episode, so I don't know how her treatment of the story goes. I can see her writing, you know, as long as she's doing a first person account of what she's doing, or sorry, the first person account of her roommate. Otherwise, I mean, she works at the good newspaper. She's supposed to know that that's a conflict of interest to write about it. And I also found it weird that nobody else at the paper seemed to have any idea that her roommate died. That, I mean, I realize she's, she's closed off, but she has at least one really good friend in the newsroom. And yeah. You know, if anybody knew that this woman was her roommate, we don't see it in the first episode. Um, Danny, how many times have you interviewed MPs about their old nudes? Uh, hang on. <laughs> <laughs> no, zero times. It's usually contracts awarded to friends and associates. That's uh, <laughs> that's a little less sexy. Nobody cutting up coke and snorting it. <laughs> 
Um, we've, we've really fallen into the good paper and the bad paper appellations for obvious reasons. Is this, does this make the, the show compelling to have these two opposing forces or is it maybe a little bit lazy? Sarah, I'll throw it to you first. I mean, I think it's a little bit lazy, but I think they also, you know, they need a number of conflicts to drive the story. So, you know, you sort of understand why it's done that way versus just having one paper that, you know, I think that this, these like sub conflicts face all journalistic properties. So you could more realistically do it at a single paper where even the good paper is like, look, we have to do a wraparound and then, People are like storming out of a meeting like, mm-hmm. OK, is it your second day? Because right. really, like maybe just having worked at Yahoo, I just have like no patience for the naivete on about some of that stuff. But mm-hmm. it's also like I get it. And I think that by having a quote bad paper, they can really um, they can really take out after some practices that they find particularly distasteful and then name it after a Murdoch property. And I mean, yeah, that's lazy, but it's also very sympathetic. So I understand why it's done that way, even though I I see your point. Also, there's a scene in the first episode where the publisher uh, calls Duncan into his car. And speaking of things that I found uh, hilariously unrealistic, the, the publisher is demanding that they do real journalism and he throws whatever he's, you know, throwing whatever resources Duncan Allen wants in the service of doing capital J journalism. Yeah. I mean, not even 20 years ago, I think, was was that really happening? Right. Um, but, you know, so we learn that the bad paper wants to be a good paper. And uh, so I guess I'll see what uh, how Duncan Allen's motivations evolve from the first episode. But. Yeah, we're calling it the bad and the good paper. It's it's a little bit more nuanced, and, and, and usually those things are a little bit more nuanced in real life. I mean, we talk about the media not being a monolith, but even at individual outlets, even, you know, uh, uh, you know right-leaning or left-leaning, there is, you know, there's a spectrum, right? Right. I also found it a bit odd, the number of um, interviews that it seemed to be SOP for interviewees to be called in like they use that term like oh yeah i was called in like they're not the cops yeah (laughs) i just found that really weird that like there was no attempt made to contact people i mean maybe there was and like there is texting but why make the internet and sort of this allusion to the um half-life of a fact if you will with um this negotiation where she's like okay well or you know duncan allen's like well we give you x y z in exchange for this interview and then at the good paper that as we said the story is already linked to on a homepage uh, in a homepage piece like there was an opportunity there that it's possible that these were older tv writers who were like we don't understand how to make the internet move on screen but okay then hire someone who worked on sherlock because they had no problem with it like it is possible to do that um 
And I'm not sure why it wasn't done because it's not like there aren't just as many thorny issues and conflicts in that part of the story. It's not all about sort of broad strokes, journalistic ethics that, you know, it's more of like a 70s style conception totally. of yeah. of the yeah. world so yeah and I, I think a lot of it when you get into the later episodes without spoiling anything a lot of the the drama is based on uh, printing deadlines and i oh, think dear. if you really did a realistic depiction of newspapers and how they publish stuff on the internet today that that whole conceit would be blown and a lot of what happens in later episodes would be moot because um, it is deadline dependent. And once you take that out, the storyline would fall apart. Like this really is a story told. This is a pre-internet story with lip service to being in the internet age. Why they didn't bother to just set this in the past is beyond me, but they didn't. And it, it does feel a little weird at times. Uh, can I just wrap up the discussion by saying, having watched two thirds of uh, the season so far, I would suggest that if this sort of show appeals to you, that I think a better viewing strategy might be to wait until the whole season is done and binge it. Because this is a show that definitely, when the episode is over, there's something there that makes you want to move on to the next episode. And it might be for sure stronger to watch four hours of this at the time, three hours of this time, than it would be one hour a week. It is good and it is compelling. It is not super great and compelling, but it's compelling enough for me to hit the go to next episode button right away. I think if I had a week in between, my enthusiasm for the show might dip Um, because it's like a solid B show, right? It's not like an A plus show. Yeah. Yeah. And I feel like, you know, yeah, sure. It's on Masterpiece, but it isn't one of Masterpiece's Masterpieces. (laughs) If you can divorce some of this the weird choices they made, such as being set in an internet age where it really isn't. Um, It's fun to watch and the performances are good. The lead actress, Charlotte, Charlotte Riley Riley is a really good sourpuss sort of Mm -hmm. why she isn't chain smoking more is beyond me because that would fit that character to a T if you're watching it and you're thinking, wow, she really looks like kind of a rundown, uh, you know, the girl from Harry Potter. They do actually, um, she tackled does. that in a later <laughs> episode. I was like, Oh, thank God somebody mentioned it in the show. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I would say like, if, if you watch the first episode, you're like, Oh yeah. Or just the premise is like, yeah, I'd be into that. Consider binging it at the, uh, in six weeks time. Uh, Sarah, this was Sarah's pick for us to talk about. And I'm glad she did because it's, it's something that deserved to get surfaced that I think will definitely was not on people's radar. And so you should check it out. It's on your PBS app. If you missed it, as I said, yeah, press it's a b and better than the newsroom yeah <laughs> it is time to go around the dial first stop tara ariano well first a little backstory i mentioned last week when i was talking about buzz that i had been talking to dave roth past and future guest of the show dave roth who apparently i called a sports writer last week which he is Uh, But of course, he is much more. He's an editor at Deadspin, where he's our foremost Trump analyst. Also had a great piece last week about uh, the current slow, ongoing evisceration of Sports Illustrated, which we will link to in the show notes. 
brutal. Um, shout yeah. out to Dave, eminent journalist, not just a sports writer, past and future guest of the show, husband to Kate, who is also a fan. Hello, Kate. Anyway, <laughs> the reason we were t- on DM was that he was asking me if we had seen Evil. And so on his recommendation, we watched the first two, which is all that have aired so far. This is a new CBS procedural. It airs on Thursday nights. It's from Robert and Michelle King, who created The Good Wife and The Good Fight. Here's the plot summary in brief. Kristen Bouchard is played by Katya Herbers, who you may know from the TV series Manhattan. She plays, she's a clinical psychologist. She's an expert witness uh, working with the DA's office um, and is a retired mountain climber uh, because she had to quit because she got pregnant and somewhat resents her children, particularly now that her husband is a guide on Everest and she is the sole caregiver for their four daughters. Uh, along with Christine Lottie, who plays her cool, like, leather jacket grandma type of mom. <laughs> Mike Coulter plays David Acosta, who works for the Catholic Church to investigate weird shit, basically. Um, and he, unlike uh, Christian, is very sincere in his faith. He has visions, we hear, although he also does drugs, so that might be related. <laughs> anyway. So it's um, Miracles with Luke Cage? Neat. Yeah. Uh, As the Kings are known for, this one makes story out of new tech. Like there's half a weird conversation, you know, is revealed not to be someone who's possessed and talking to themselves. It's coming out of a smart fridge. Uh, There's an angel on a digital video that might be an artifact or a deep fake. Um, And so the debunking parts of the show are fun. And um, Kristen also starts getting visited by an incubus that she determines is a dream through psychology stuff that was cool to me where like you can't read text in a dream apparently so like she puts a sign on her ceiling before she goes to sleep to see if she can read it while she's sleeping so it's like it's a night terror but it's not real uh which you know that's a life hack you could use i guess if you have night terrors i don't know um but the character is named this this incubus is named george and he's like very sassy which is also kind of funny and unexpected um, and later we find out that the kids uh, have gotten a glimpse of a very similar looking kind of demon on a supernatural TV show. And she stops the kid from having nightmares about it by showing her a behind the scenes video of how they do the makeup effects, which is, again, another smart life hack for a parent. Um, Michael Emerson is in it as a rival expert witness who might be a sociopath persuading weak minded people to do crimes. And it's hard to argue with the show when it says the world is worse than it used to be because people with broken brains are finding each other on social media. Like, okay, (laughs) true. Um, I would call this extremely high quality hotel TV, which honestly some stump town, which we talked about last week kind of was also Dave, you watched this. What did you think? Oh, um, yep. Here's your problem. (laughs) Someone set this thing to evil. (laughs) <laughs> he said that three times in, th- in two episodes there would have been four but the fourth opportunity he had to say it his mouth was full it's never going to stop being funny to me guys so thank you for the recommendation david roth journalist <laughs> uh for my plug um i'm going to remind you that the succession season one two excuse me season two of succession is almost over and therefore so is the sweet smell of succession. So please tune in for our episode on the finale, which will be available to you to download a uh, late Sunday or possibly early Monday morning. Um, yeah, a lot of, a lot of other storylines coming to a head on that one too, in another very different media story from press, but uh, yeah, it's going to be going to be a barn burner. I suspect. Mr. Dan McEachern, what do you got? Uh, I don't think I need to, tell anybody listening to this podcast about big mouth but its new season (laughs) came out on friday i believe it was and 
my wife and I did something that we have rarely done since we had a child, and we watched an entire season of a show over the course of the weekend. Wow. We were, yeah, we, we never get to do that anymore. It's ridiculous. Um, sadly, our daughter is not quite old enough for the very adult material. This, I mean, it, I think it's even filthier this season than it, mm-hmm. it, somehow than the past couple of seasons. Uh, but she had a basketball camp most of the weekend, so that gave us a lot of downtime <laughs> to be able to make through it, make it through the make it through the season. Uh, I found this season a little bit more. It felt a little bit more episodic than than for sure season two, with a little bit not not as much of an overarching plot arc. Um, and it tackled, you know, it, it had a bunch of topics that it tackled. Some some of that it's gotten to to some degree or another in previous seasons, including but not limited to. Dick pics, toxic masculinity, incest, menopause. I think menopause was new. I can't remember. The female orgasm, objectification, uh, Canadian Netflix, which was nice to see, and uh, the spec- the sexuality of uh, or the spectrum of human sexuality. And that last one got them in a little bit of trouble. Uh, and even to my ears, when when I was listening to this uh, uh, bit of a definition of pansexuality and bisexuality something wasn't quite right and um there's a new character on the show ali wong she's or her, she's played by ali wong i forget her name on the uh, uh on the show uh but she introduces herself as pansexual and jay is decided that he's bisexual and he says that he likes everybody and she says no that's pansexuality we're also attracted to people who are transitioning or people who, you know and so it was this weird uh monologue that implied that people who are bisexual aren't attracted to or can't be attracted to people who are trans or, or also that, you know, trans people don't have a gender. And, um, so that was a bit of a sour note. Uh, the co-creator of the show had to apologize. Other than that though, it, I mean, it's really funny. It's still a really funny show. We, we did the thing where we just rolled one episode right into the next because we just wanted to keep watching. How uh, decadent. Did, yes. It's luxurious. <laughs> Uh, how did you uh, did you childless folks watch it over the weekend? Yes, we did. Um, we also watched the whole thing in in well, I guess it was all in one day, but we had to break it up because Cody Jones had to go and take a nap. Um, but yeah, I thought it was good. Um, I I missed. I, I gathered that people were mad about something about, the, about Big Mouth, and it took until today for me to actually like follow the breadcrumbs to figure out what it was. So yeah, that was not great. Um, and especially if you're going to try to do that, you really have to be careful. Um, and they weren't, but I think on the whole, like it's, it, it's a good spirited show. I don't think that it was coming from like malice. It was just, you know, a lack of education and hopefully people will not swear off it forever. Uh, but the Florida episode was an all timer and uh, written by Sarah's old friend, Victor Kinoz from the chair. Um, so <laughs> that was probably my favorite episode of the season. Disclosure, Dave. the movie, the musical was also a good one. Yeah, that was good. Dave. Uh, I thought the season was probably the weakest of the three so far. Um, and I'm not really quite sure about the spinoff that I've heard about where yeah. they're doing the, is sort of like the back office of the, you know, the, the monsters incorporated basically. And I'm concerned because like after Maurice, after the hormone monsters, the level of characterization of all their other stuff, like the Banshee was like really lazy this, yep. this season. So if it's more of that, if that's how they're expanding it, no, thank you. If they can like do a good rethink and bring hormone monster 
quality to all their characters, sure, but I feel like they're already running dry on ideas there. So, you know, I, mm-hmm. I, I assume that'll be handled by sort of an adjacent team and at the same team. So that's that's a question mark for me. Did you have anything to plug, Danny? I don't have anything to plug. So what I want to do is uh, let everybody listening know about a great episode of Mark and Sarah Talk About Songs, a recent hey, one that they did with you. John Ramos. Uh, uh, you guys ranked every song on Live Through This by Hole. It was not an album that I was overly familiar with. It wasn't a big part of my uh, music listening at the time. Uh, after that episode, I am going to rectify that. The discussion was great. I enjoyed every minute of it. And whether you know the album or not, you should give it a listen. The podcast. Ooh, thanks, man. And also the album. Thirty Bunting. Cash Cab is back. Why should anyone care about this? <laughs> Come with me on a little family narrative. <laughs> My parents, particularly my mother, uh, doesn't really understand what I do. Like in terms of um, my sort of relative standing, like she doesn't really understand what podcasting is and why I (laughs) mostly do that and uh, doesn't listen to anything uh, that I do because I don't think she would know how, uh, but I mean to tell you that when I told her that I had a screener of the reboot of Cash Cab, (laughs) all of a sudden, respect coming my way from Barb. (laughs) We actually got two of the new episodes, the premiere, uh, which aired um, as we're recording this last night. It's going to be on Sunday through Thursdays on Bravo at 1130. So after Watch What Happens Live, which interesting pairing. Okay. Uh, so we got the premiere and then we got the fourth episode, which featured a um, Bravo Leopardy guest teammate. Ooh. I will not reveal who it is, but this person was super enthusiastic um, and a definite highlight for me, even though I do not watch his show any longer. Um, it, it's so nice to have it back. Like this really is, this really is such a well-built um welcoming show that you can kind of half watch like i enjoy jeopardy and family feud but you do have to like kind of pay attention to those but then there's also a lot of dead air in the even not a lot in jeopardy but like there are always those moments where it's like get to know the contestants and i'm like um i'm gonna go into the kitchen and get to know a cookie because who cares cash cab does not have that ben bailey is still the host uh, I found out that he is from one town over from me oh. in New Jersey and actually still lives in uh, Morristown with his fam, which is rad to me. Uh, it was just really nice to see it again and to play along with the questions, which are like exactly on that line of like they're cinchy enough, but then you can sometimes feel smug wh- about knowing them. Uh, and people are so excited to get in the cash cab, like the ceiling goes on, like the ceiling lights go on and there's this Pavlovian like screeching that happens. And the way that the drunk people are like so excited to do the sidewalk, uh, like helpline. And then when the person gets it right and they're like, thanks, Joe, and people are like throwing dollar bills out the window. It's just nice to have it back. It's a, <laughs> it's exactly, it gives you exactly what you expect. And, uh, that something is happiness at other people getting a small amount of money and also (laughs) hope that you might get in the cash cab 
one day. That was Aww. like one of my chief goals uh, back in the day, and I'm glad that I could still do it. <laughs> For my plug, I actually um, could use a little um, infusion from the cash cab because I uh, spent so much money on a Beretta episode so that I could Woo! review it for my podcast, Quaid in Full. That episode is available now. It's about Beretta Season 4, Episode 4, The Sky is Falling, in which Dennis Quaid plays a pimp. If you're not familiar with Quaid in Full, I am reviewing every single Dennis Quaid property in chronological order. I'm only four in. The guy works a lot. I'm really <laughs> screwed. Come listen to it. Help me. Support me. And uh, many of these fine people on the panel today will be guests in the future. So subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. AMC Network's Sundance Now is a premium streaming video service offering a rich selection of prestige dramas, heart-stopping thrillers, and gripping true crime series from around the world. Sundance Now believes that life is more enriching when experienced through perspectives that differ from our own. Why is Sundance Now so awesome? Sundance Now's catalog includes award-winning original content, international exclusives, and hard-to-find properties at a fair price. You get premium content and no commercials for as low as $4.99 a month with an annual membership. And you can enjoy it anywhere. Sundance Now works on all your favorite devices. Download the app or watch online on Apple and Android devices, Amazon Fire TV, Google Chromecast, Roku, and more. My favorite aspect of Sundance Now is their documentary library. Pop culture investigations like The Cult of J.T. Leroy, The Pussy Riot Doc, and that must-see for Project Runway fans, Bill Cunningham, New York. But the catalog is impressively deep on the true crime front, too. There are lots of films I've covered for my true crime newsletter, but just as many I haven't had a chance to watch yet. And I had to force myself not to start Valentine Road instead of recording this ad. So let's get to that promo code so that I can get back to the film and you can join me free for 30 days. Start streaming your next obsession. To try Sundance Now free for 30 days, go to SundanceNow.com and use promo code EHG. That's S-U-N-D-A-N-C-E-N-O-W dot com and use promo code E-H-G for 30 days of free streaming. Thanks, Sundance Now. Today's extra credit topic is called Small Screen Slash Larger Than Life comes to us from Rebecca, who writes... I loved Fosse Verdon and the Sam Wasson biography it's based on and would love to see more limited series based on fascinating biographies. What famous person deserves the Fosse Verdon treatment? Bonus points if there's an actual book to option for your show. And who would you cast in the main roles? I'll go first. I am not much of a biography reader, but based on an excerpt from The New Yorker, for which Connie Bruck is or possibly was a staff writer, this was a while ago, I read her biography of Lou Wasserman, which was called mm. When Hollywood Had a King. And even if you don't know his name, you have seen this guy's picture. <laughs> he's the really the old... Glasses. He's the old, old uh, Hollywood mogul with like a skinny peanut head and gigantic black frame glasses. It's that guy. So his story is he was a talent agent, he was a producer, he was a studio head, um, and uh, he, before all that, was the son of Russian immigrants. Um, he revolutionized the way that talent agencies worked. He basically built MCA out of nothing into what it became. 
Um, also was a pioneer of packaging film projects, which has become a sticking point now for agents in the WGA, although I don't think that can be blamed on him, what they're fighting about now. Also basically invented the uh, MPAA, the Motion Picture Association of America, which does all the ratings and put Jack Valenti in charge, was hugely influential in the rise of TV movies in the 70s, helped Steven Spielberg launch his career by giving him one to direct, mm-hmm. uh, ran Universal Studio for 30 years before they sold it to a Japanese company, was a hugely powerful person in the industry for like more than 50 years. And he was, was in married- Vanity Fair back in the day every month, like yeah. and in some picture looking like Iris Apple and he was great <laughs> totally was. oh my god he did uh and was married to the same woman that entire time and as i've already said is an eyewear icon so my <laughs> casting really i mean there's obviously lots of people you know people that swirled around him over the many many years that he was uh you know active in the industry but there's really only one role to cast which is him lou wasserman and i would cast Jeremy Strong uh, of Succession. He plays Kendall Roy. Look him up, but then look up mm-hmm. young Lou Wasserman. You'll see what I'm talking about. Although you really could put those glasses on anyone and they potentially could play him. Mm-hmm. Danny. Uh, like you, I don't read a ton of biographies, so I had to go into my Goodreads list to, to see if anything jogged my memory. And then I remembered that last year I read His Way, Kitty Kelly's unauthorized biography of Frank Sinatra. Ooh. <laughs> yeah. I haven't seen Fosse Verdon. Um, so I don't know if for the purposes of this extra credit, the show that is produced needs to be a good show. Uh, it doesn't, <laughs> cause be, it might not necessarily be a good show if it's uh, you know, if, if you give it the same treatment that the, the book gives Frank Sinatra, um, in terms of casting, I mean, there, there's a lot of material there. His, uh, his mob ties, his fights, his, the way he ruled Hollywood for years. Um, so, uh, in terms of casting, I, I cast the Rat Pack. Um, which even even the members of the Rat Pack that I don't think anybody even cared about at the time. Uh, <laughs> oh, Joey! <laughs> so I went from worst to first, and Joey Bishop is first. He's going to be played by Steve Carell. Uh-huh. Um, uh-huh. Peter Peter Lawford played by Andrew Lincoln. Uh-huh. Um, S- Sammy Davis Jr. played by Giancarlo Esposito, who for some reason I I actually googled their heights because I thought well I I thought uh, Esposito was much taller than he is. He's certainly taller than Sammy Davis Jr., but not by as much as I thought. So okay, he's going to be Sammy Davis Jr. John Hamm will play Dean Martin. Yeah. Thank you. Uh, Cecily Strong can play Ava Gardner. Mm-hmm. Um, Mia Farrow will be played by Deborah Ann Wool. Um, she plays Karen Page in Daredevil. Mm-hmm. I, I had a hard time casting that one. Yeah. For, for Old Blue Eyes himself, sadly, Phil Hartman is no longer with us mm. to play, play him, at least in the older years. That could go to Harry Connick Jr. In, yeah. terms of, in terms of the younger years, technically this guy isn't an actor, but maybe Ronan Farrow could give it a shot. <laughs> I don't know what you mean. Just nice. I don't know. He might want to for his mom. <laughs> That's sure. excellent. Nice work, Sarah. Um, so I don't need Teddy Roosevelt's entire life. But I am kind of obsessed with the story of the scientific expedition he took into the Amazon in 1913 that nearly killed him. There is a book about this, River of Doubt, by Candace Millard. I haven't read it, but she also wrote that book about Garfield's assassination, which I did read and I thought was great. He hates Mondays. This story was covered in some detail in the Ken Burns documentary about the Roosevelt's, but I would not mind a scripted look at it, directed, preferably, 
by Werner Herzog, who has some experience with rainforest projects going horribly pear-shaped. And if you guys have not read his Conquest of the Useless, I suggest you remedy that immediately. You don't have to have watched any of his movies or even like know who he is. It's so fun and well-written. I dog-eared like every page. <laughs> anyway, in terms of casting this, uh, I too felt that Phil Hartman would have made an excellent Teddy Roosevelt, but that's not <laughs> going to work. So I am actually fine with Paul Giamatti, who voiced the role for the Ken Burns doc. Mm-hmm. As Teddy, uh, he was on this expedition with his son, Kermit. So as young Kermit, Jack Quaid, why not? Mm-hmm. And uh, if you would like to have older Kermit narrating the story in a framing device, Brian Cranston would probably work. Mm. Uh, Justifieds Nick Searcy as naturalist George Sherry. And uh, what the hell? Michelle Williams is Alice Roosevelt Longworth. She's a little old for the role, but she could make it work. And she still basically doesn't have any pores. And we love her. So that's my story. Love it. Dave. Um, I don't know why, but I'm picturing there's a scene where he's on a boat in the Amazon and he's totally naked and those penis fish are flying at him. He's just punching him out of the air. Not today, fish. (laughs) That could have happened. Yeah. (laughs) I, okay. So I have one that's also historical of those even older. Her name is, uh, Ching Shi. She's known as the terror of the South China Sea. Born in 1775, she was a Chinese prostitute who worked on a brothel boat, which apparently was a thing. And during her business rounds, she met uh, this guy named Jung Lee, who was the pirate commander of the infamous Red Flag Fleet. And eventually, uh, he falls in love with her and proposes to her, but she only accepts under the terms that she become an equal member in the pirate business that he has. He agrees. And so they continue the pirating together. At the time of their marriage, pirating. the fleet was 200 ships strong. So it was already a big one. Yeah. But within a few years, it was 1,800 ships strong. So much that they franchised it out. They had a black fleet, a white fleet, blue, yellow, green, all joining the original red flag fleet. Six years after they're married, he dies. He was killed in some piratey battle in Vietnam, and she becomes <laughs> Madame uh, Ching Shi. She takes over. As soon as she takes over, she puts in this very strict code of conduct for everybody who works for her. And this includes every time you do some piracy stuff, you have to do a complete registry of absolutely every item of booty under penalty of beheading. Whatever ship finds the booty gets a 20% finder's fee. So the 20% of the booty goes to them and then the rest of it's distributed among the rest of the fleet. So it's sort of like this collective. It's like socialist piracy. Love it. One of the other things she does is um, those who were on the captured vessels who don't cooperate fully when they capture them, they have their feet nailed to the deck as the boat's still in water, bobbing to and fro. So you can imagine how painful it was. And that's only the start of it. That's just so they stay still while she tortures them some more for not uh, showing them exactly where all the gold and whatnot is. One of the more interesting uh, laws that she enacts is things to do with the female prisoners that the fleet captures. So the crew were allowed to keep women as wives or concubines, but only 
if these men were faithful to them and took care of them. So like a proper marriage, uh, rape or infidelity were met with beheadings. So, you know, she's a very uh, progressive, terrorizing pirate figure. (laughs) Other than the torture, yes. Yes. Matriarchal torturing figure. Look, if you're in the pirate business, you're going to be torturing people. It's just the way it is. So, you know, you take some torture, but then like you, you move, you move the needle on uh, (laughs) rape and infidelity. As it were. (laughs) Uh, over the over her uh, tenure as a uh, pirate commander, I suppose uh, she sinks over sixty Chinese government vessels, and her like her reputation and her methods like always precede her. Um, all the local colonial powers at the time, like the English, they're just like, you know what? You just have free reign. We're just going to keep out of your business. They give her a wide berth. They don't mess with her at all. So. She basically has free reign over the South China Seas. She's such a terror that the Chinese emperor granted her full amnesty and allowed her to return to civilian life with every penny that she pirated ever. If she would just stop, please stop, because like nobody could stop her. She says, all right, fine, I'm getting older. I could do that. She marries one of her former uh, underlings and starts like a casino empire on the mainland. <laughs> so she's like gangster to the end. She finally dies in 1844. There's never really been like an A plus book or movie or anything done on her. There's been a lot of minor things. She was like one of the pirate lords in uh, mm-hmm. Pirates of the Caribbean, you know, when the, the Council of Ne'er Do Wells, she's one of them. Oh. So like she mm-hmm. is. A known histor- a known minor historical figure, but has a great story that nobody's really told properly. So I feel like not only is the story compelling and kind of has like progressive undertones in a very violent setting, which lends itself very well to a commercial product. So you get to have the boobies, you get to have the beheadings. It's basically kind of mm-hmm. like a Chinese pirate Game of Thrones ready to be made. Um, casting, I feel like it needs to be cast and shot in Chinese because there is a certain, there's certain languages where when people get angry or excited, you lose something when it's dubbed or shot in English, yeah. like, like a World War II film. If you got really angry Germans, are they going to be angrier in German or English? It's going to be German. <laughs> and if you're going to have excited Chinese, pirates jumping and fighting and 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 getting angry at each other it's got to be in chinese that's my that sense. sounds awesome yeah i've watched that great picks everybody yeah it is time for the canon submitting this week is our guest danny mckecker take it away dan thank you dave today i am proposing the 13th episode of the first and only season of the grinder now, for anybody who missed it, which is probably a lot of the people within the sound of my voice right now, The Grinder is in the same graveyard of other underappreciated comedies that Fox gave one season and no more, including, but not limited to, Undeclared, Greg the Bunny, and Enlisted are a few that came to mind for Aww. me. The Grinder aired on Fox from 2015 to 2016, a couple of dozen episodes. It starred Fred Savage and Rob Lowe as brothers Stu and Dean Sanderson, respectively. Stu is a lawyer in their father's law firm, while Dean is an actor who has recently finished an eight-season run playing the titular lawyer role on an extremely popular television show, also called The Grinder. Now, Dean has come to live with Stu and his family, much to Stu's chagrin, 
as Dean is rather directionless after his show's series finale, and without anything else to do, he spends his time meddling in Stu's family life. He also spends a lot of his time hanging out at the family law firm. This delights their father, delights really just about everybody but Stu. Clients and judges are usually charmed by Dean and occasionally even opposing counsel. And this is because Dean has not fully left the character of the grinder behind. He speaks all his lines like he's shooting an emotional climax on an hour-long melodrama. And while he's sort of working towards becoming a real lawyer, he feels betrayed and forgotten when the grinder, the show within the show, carries on without him and with no drop in popularity as the grinder New Orleans, starring Timothy Oliphant as his character's brother. Now, that development results in Timothy Oliphant playing himself, or at least a typical Hollywood narcissist version of himself. Let's hope it's a a version of himself. (laughs) Uh, in a handful of episodes. He winds up dating Claire, another lawyer at the firm, and also the only other person in the firm who's immune to Dean's charms. And because he is, he uh, he's really clingy, she's also increasingly immune to the charms of Timothy Oliphant, which I, I hope certain members of the Extra Hot Great Jury will not penalize me for in this canon presentation. <laughs> uh, penalize. Uh, <laughs> penis fish. Um... These themes, Dean's search for direction, Stu's wish to be accorded the same respect as a real lawyer that Dean received as a fake lawyer, and Timothy Oliphant all converge in the mid-season episode, Grinder v. Grinder. Timothy Oliphant plans to be hanging around a lot more to be with Claire. That bothers Dean a lot, especially when something Oliphant learned on the show turns out to be relevant in real life. And he starts ranting about it at Stu and his family that night in clip number one. It's, it's crazy. The guy's done four episodes. Now he thinks he's a lawyer. Really outrageous. It's embarrassing. I mean, he must be a crazy person. I love that you think this is insane. Stu, you're telling me that an actor who's played a part for four weeks has the same amount of experience as a guy who's played the part for eight years? I think someone without a law degree is just as qualified as someone else who also doesn't have a law degree. Okay. So you're choking to death in a movie theater. Two rows behind you sits Anthony Edwards. Please, Dean, I do not want to have this conversation It's again. a totally different argument this time. The row in front of you sits Goran Visnich. Dean, a man who also played a doctor on that same show, but only at the end, when they weren't even telling medically driven stories anymore. Yeah, and that's when they lost me. So, I ask you, in whose hands would you put your life? I'll take Edwards all day long. Yeah, I mean, given the very specific parameters. I would have to choose Edwards. I agree with the family. Edwards, of course. Dean continues to rant, and as he does so, Stu realizes that this is an opportunity for him to use Timothy Oliphant to drive his brother crazy, and hopefully get him out of the law firm, maybe back to Hollywood. So he enlists Claire's help at work to have Oliphant drop by more often to provide a few pop-ins, a few chime-ins. She's on board. And at first it looks like it's going to work, but Dean and Timothy Oliphant very soon find common ground in clip number two. Dean, wait. Tim, what do you want? I just want to learn. Don't overthink it. The show's a hit. People love it. Critics love it. Not my biggest critic. Yourself. I'm just acting. I'm not inhabiting the damn role. I'm on that set, I'm saying my lines, but I don't believe myself. Does the audience? Sure, every time. But not me. If acting were easy, we wouldn't be doing it. We're junkies for the challenge. Look, I've only caught a couple of episodes of NOLA. Mm-hmm. But what I have noticed is when you're playing anger... You're doing a lot of yelling on the jury box like this. That sells outrage, yes. Yeah. But what if you brought it all down here and let the world... 
words play the emotion. Down here? Yes. Yeah, this feels dangerous. Yeah, you like that, don't you? I could explode any moment. Not at any moment. The explosion has to cut against the beat! This is gonna be fun. It's already fun. At the end there, that's Stu mistaking the yelling for actual anger. So he's surprised when he finds out that Dean and Tim are now buddy-buddy with Dean teaching Tim how to hop onto the jury box and how to dramatically remove his sunglasses. And Timothy Oliphant is already trying to participate in court, offering advice on jury selection. So what does Stu do? His wife, Debbie, has an idea in clip number three. Now there's two of them. Yeah, no, I was counting. And they're like in love with each other, honey. I mean, how, how does that happen? Well, pretty sure you brought that on yourself. Yeah, I know. I was just trying to give him a little taste of what it was like. Right. And now I would kill to go back to having just one actor at the firm. Why don't you turn them against each other? I'm listening. Well, I mean, they're both used to being the star, right? So why don't you just remind them of that and let them destroy each other? Oh, hon, that's dark. Yeah? But awesome. Right? Yeah, that's right. He's going to get them to fight over who's number one on the call sheet. But this new plan doesn't go any better. Oliphant almost immediately reveals that it was Stu's idea for him to come in more often, and that really bothers Dean. Still, the two actors start arguing over who is less of a non-lawyer, and soon we are headed for a mock trial, with Dean and Tim agreeing that the loser will leave the law firm that neither of them actually work at forever. Uh, It even has a real judge, and the jury is made up of the members of Dean Sanderson Sr.'s Fishing Society. Now, one of the most enjoyable aspects of the show was Rob Lowe's note-perfect dramatic readings of an actor who played a lawyer trying to use what he learned in court in real life. And as the title of this episode, Grinder v. Grinder, implies, we get double that this time out. Clip number four. Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, I am not a real lawyer. For me to posit that I am one would be a violation of my ethical responsibilities as an attorney. I am here to prove that just because a person is not something does not mean that he is not closer to being the thing he is not than another person. (laughs) As the straight man in this comedy, Fred Savage is excellent as usual, as the only one who sees that Dean is constantly playing to non-existent cameras. Dean is losing this fake case, and there doesn't seem to be any way to avoid it in clip number five. He's going to put me on the stand, Dean. I know. He's going to rip you apart. Humiliate you in front of your family, co-workers. Just tell the truth. You'll be fine. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Now, uh, every episode of The Grinder, the show, not the show within the show, began with a clip from the show within the show um, that would proved to have some relevance later on in the episode of the show. And in, in this case, in a clip featuring Polly Walnuts from The Sopranos, Sarah, uh, it's an <laughs> innocuous you. statement that triggers a breakthrough in a case. In the mock trial, something Stu's lawyer once told him comes up, and that's that a lawyer isn't truly a lawyer until he loses his first case. Now, Dean Sanderson as the grinder never lost, but Timothy Oliphant already has in episode three or episode four of uh, The Grinder, New Orleans, as he says it. Which means he's less of a non-lawyer than Dean is, which kind of makes a certain boneheaded sense. (laughs) So a defeated Dean asks the judge to hand Oliphant the win, which he does. But then, clip number six. And in so doing, give me my first taste of defeat. 
Coupled with my edge and experience, Your Honor, I would like to move to reopen this case and ask the jury if they would like to reconsider their verdict. Okay. Guys? Yeah. Why not? Now I rule in favor of Mr. Dean Sanderson. Is this the stupidest thing I've ever been a part of? I think it might be. It's up there. I would say. The Grinder didn't set the world on fire. It wasn't particularly groundbreaking. It was a single season of a fish-out-of-water comedy. It wasn't political or edgy. It didn't win a slew of awards, although Rob Lowe was nominated for a Golden Globe, and Timothy Oliphant did win a Critics' Choice Award for his work on the show. One season might have been enough. The second half of this season contained a too-long storyline involving a malpractice lawsuit against Stu and Dean's father that went on forever. And the show's premise itself maybe did not lend itself to limitless storylines, certainly not for the two dozen or so episodes of the standard network television sitcom season. But while it lasted, it was extremely funny, well-acted, and it deserves to be remembered and deserves representation in the canon. This episode represents its peak, and thus should be the entrant. The Grinder wasn't the best television show in history, but, and if I may, I'd like to ask a favorite rhetorical question of the Grinder himself. What if it was? <laughs> Well, um, this I, I appreciate the way that you played to your judges. First to Sarah with a Polly Walnuts clip <laughs> right up top. Yeah. Secondarily to me with, you know, obviously much more of Timothy off with his pants. Timothy. <laughs> off with his off pants. With his pants. Um, Bringing that character in was a very funny touch. Everything around it, like that it's he's on a spinoff. It's in New Orleans. <laughs> like they call it NOLA. Um, Dean is very bitter about it. You know, every that all was very funny. And, and there was a lot to laugh at in this episode. But I think when you said one season of the show might have been enough, I agree. And I never like I watched the whole first season. I liked it. But watching this episode just kind of reminded me that like, this premise either is too big for the traditional sitcom format or too small. And by that, I mean, it would have worked better, I think, either as a movie, uh, like a really dumb movie in the stepbrothers mold, or mm -hmm. as an adult swim, like 10 minute sitcom where you could get someone like, you know, like a John Glazer doing something completely idiotic. Like you wouldn't get a Rob Lowe to do something like that. Obviously, I bet Fred Savage would. But the watching a whole half hour of it, you see like they do feel like there's a lot of times where they're just they're repeating themselves. They're like, oh, he just did the thing or they have to call out like this is the first time the wife and the colleague are meeting. And isn't that weird? Like it's very meta. I get what they're doing, but I don't know if it feels like it's enough to like be a show that had legs and obviously it didn't because it got canceled. But um yeah, I, I, the, the, the actual legal proceeding to me was really tortured. And if it had just been the setup and then that was the episode and it was just like dumb on its face and then they move on to some other dumb idea, like I feel like that might have been a better format for this concept. So that's how I feel. Also, I'm pretty sure Goran Visnich did more episodes of ER than Anthony. He did. I looked it up. <laughs> Thank you. I'm and he wasn't you late either. He came in in like episode or season six out of 15 yeah. and stayed mm -hmm. there. So, yeah. yeah. All right. Anyway, those are my thoughts, Sarah. Um, I, I see your critiques, but yes, this is definitely, uh, this is definitely playing to the jury and as well. 
I am married to an actor, so the ex- and I love these crappy procedurals, as you know. Um, <laughs> Blue Bloods, but like I know where to find it at any time. It's not that difficult, but still, uh, there's just something about the fact that they put the dramatical music in every scene of mm-hmm. realization, even when people are making fun of the meta-ness of the concept. Um, the dramatic roof scene and like just the blocking of it and the way that people are always pushing past each other grumpily. Uh, I think that in, in those details, it really speaks to me as a procedural fan and uh, actor's bride that maybe that doesn't carry for some people, but uh, the cliches of the legal drama uh, I just thought were really well done. Uh, and there's just something about having uh, big Billy Devane uh, in this show, like just the biggest scenery chewer of the 70s and 80s, pretty much. Shatner aside. Um, I just really enjoyed it. And I did want to keep watching it, which is a big, uh, big um, criterion for me, as everyone knows. Um, and uh, just Grinder Nola. Uh, this may have been way better than the show uh, usually was. This may, like Tara's right, that it was kind of repetitive once the concept was out there, like just, you know, get on with it or go somewhere even more crazy. But uh, I really enjoyed it and was charmed by this uh, 21 minutes. David T. Cole. Yeah, I agree. I often kind of wondered after the show got canceled, like, how it didn't do better because I always thought like the show had so many things going for it. Like it had a very likable cast. It was smart, but not too smart. It was silly, but not too silly. Like it really seemed like it should have been more of a four quadrant success. It's this show that's forever going to live in this like quality limbo, you know, like if they had a second season, I bet it would have been a lot better too. Like, I feel like it was a show that, had enough smart people writing for it and had an, enough going for it that I I really do feel like they could have shifted gears in a meaningful way. Um, was not meant to be. But one of the things about this episode, why it's so great and so much better than a lot of the rest of the season, is Timothy Oliphant. And uh, it's great that they got such a like perfect equal to Rob Lowe, if that was a real world recasting of the TV show, you've been, oh yeah, right. I mean, that that's perfect. And that Timothy Oliphant comes in, plays himself and plays himself as such a dope is like so heartwarming and kind of confirms everything you hope to be true about Timothy Oliphant. The moment that really gets me in this episode is right at the end after he loses the trial and he's got this girlfriend lawyer who's really not that into him as it turns out, which is funny <laughs> into itself. He looks at her after this whole thing that he's just lost, stares at her, does the heart pat and nod and then leaves the room. It is like totally out of nowhere, is not connected (laughs) to anything that just happened. And she just sort of like, what the fuck? She's just like, that's a nose wrinkle. What the fuck moment that they like wrote that in. It's such a dopey, stupid moment for Timothy Oliphant, the character that uh, I just really loved it. And I really loved that part of the show, how it would take these 
movie, TV, Hollywood people and just take them down so many pegs and that they were very much into it. And it was part of the DNA of the show. I really love that about this show. You know, it's not the, wasn't the best show. It's not like when Arrested Development was canceled. And I'm like, oh man. I mean, I felt that show was something unique and, and, uh, and, and special. And I wish they continued to do it. Then they did. And it wasn't very good, but I feel like Dan is right. Like this is a show that was good and had a lot of things going for it. And this is like the show at its most charming and that that charm couldn't carry it through to a second season is a little bit sad, mm. but I think the Timothy Oliphant quotient really puts this a, a, a notch above. So I am about to uh, faint. So let us put this to a vote quickly. <laughs> Tara Ariano sounds like you might be on the no side. Yeah, I'm going to say nay, but thank you, Danny. Sarah D. Bunting. Um, on behalf of my fellow Bay Ridge resident, Tony Sirico, that's a yes for me. <laughs> and on behalf of Tylenol Codeine and other drugs, I will say yes, too. So two to one, that means... Oh, boy. The Grinder, Season 1, Episode 13, Grinder v. Grinder. You are hereby inducted into the extra hot great cannon. Americans love a winner. Yup. And will not tolerate a loser. Nope. It's time for winner and loser. Oh, I just want to sing everything now. I don't know why. Winner and loser of the week. Sarah has our winner. Sarah's not going to sing. You're all welcome. Uh, the winner is Rachel Maddow, who has been cast in a voice-only role on Batwoman. Uh, she'll be playing, quote, the snarky voice of Gossip Maven Vesper Fairchild. <laughs> uh, I think that's really perfect uh casting and just i don't know fun it's really fun i wish they'd managed to like keep it more of a secret because i think it would have been fun to kind of try to guess who it was but i i still think that rules i love her yeah i tweeted about it last week and i think it was tyler Coates who was like oh she's like dear sally <laughs> yeah <kind> of is. <laughs> <laughs> and loser uh, Loser is Lindsay Lohan. Oh, oh girl. She was a dear. judge on The Masked Singer Australia. And I say was because there's obviously to be a second season of that. She has not been invited to return. However, due to tricky demands, <laughs> I can only imagine what those would be having seen her Beach Club show. But I bet she was a handful. Wasn't she a loser like six weeks ago because of whatever gossip coming off the set that she was like constantly late and oh yeah probably to be smoking so yeah mm-hmm. yeah speaking about being constantly late do you know what time it is <laughs> time. yeah game time This is the 11th game time of the season. Good golly, Miss Molly. Season scores are Tara 4, Sarah 3, Value Guest 3. Today we are playing Familiar Situations from Kimberly, who earns herself an extra credit topic. You must identify which character from a TV show was subjected to an overused plot device. Mm -hmm. I'm going to give you the show. And the answer is the relevant main character or sometimes characters. Answer correctly and you'll get two points. 
Each round has a bonus question with multiple choice or yes, no answers. And we'll see what those are as we go along. Steel meal situation, please, Tara Ariana. Thank you, Dave. I have five. Sarah has one. Valued guests do not have. Boo. All right, let's throw this to Picky to see who will be going first. We will start with Sarah. All right, our order today, Sarah, Dan, Tara. We have 36 questions across six rounds of play. Are we ready to play familiar situations? Yes. We are if you are, Dave. <laughs> let's find out. <laughs> Here we go. Round one. Who's got amnesia? I will okay. give you the show. You tell me what major character had amnesia. All right. Yeah. Okay. Sarah D. Bunting. Your show, Beverly Hills 90210. Who got amnesia? It's a sitcom now. Uh, that is Kelly Taylor. You are correct. Here is your follow-up multiple choice. You tell me how it happened. A, did she fall off a cliff during the gang's camping trip? <laughs> B, was she knocked into a pool by an under-the-influence Dylan McKay? Or C, was she shot in a drive-by? Because of Brandon, C. You are correct, and that gives you three points. Two points for the character, one point for the follow-up multiple choice. Got it. Thanks, Kel. Dan. Yes, sir. The show, Alias, Who Got Amnesia? The Alias. person who got amnesia was uh, Michael Vaughn. Was it Vaughn? Incorrect. It was Sydney Bristow. Okay, but uh. you can still get a point on the follow-up. We're wondering how did Sydney get amnesia? A. Did evil Francie kidnap and brainwash her? B. Did she voluntarily have her memory wiped so she couldn't reveal her secret mission? Or C, did Sloan experiment on her because he thought the secret of the Rambaldi device was hidden in her psyche? I mean, speaking of amnesia, I watched the whole series and I barely remember that. Uh, I am going to go with B. B is correct. She voluntarily hey. had her memory wiped. That is good for one point for Mr. McKeckern. Tara, your first question. It's a show called Melrose Place. Uh-huh. What major character on Melrose Place got amnesia? Well, we haven't gotten to it yet, so I'm going to take a stab in the dark. As it were. Oh, wait. No, I know who this is. It's Kimberly. Oh, wait. It's not Kimberly. It was Michael Mancini, the mascot's best friend. Mancini. What? How okay. did he get amnesia, Tara? Okay. Did he crash his motorcycle during a midlife crisis? A. Mm. B. Was he drugged by Sydney so he would forget he loved Kimberly? Uh-huh. Or C. Did Kimberly run him down with a car f for revenge? Oh, two good options there. I'm going to roll the dice and say B. Mm. He was Damn not it. correct. What was your other guess? C. C was the correct guess. Poop. Running him down with a car for good old fashioned American revenge. Mm. All right, Sarah D. Bunting, back to you. Your show, Jane the Virgin. Jane the Virgin. 
I have no idea. So let's say Jane. That is a good guess if you don't know anything, but incorrect. <laughs> the correct answer is Michael. Okay. So let's figure out why Michael got amnesia. A, he was abducted and subjected to electroshock treatment. B, he was defenestrated by Raphael's mother who wanted him out of the way so Jane and Raphael will get married. C, did he fall off a ladder while putting up Christmas lights? Mm, uh, I'm going to go defenestration. Defenestration is did not right answer. <laughs> Electroshock <laughs> treatment was what we were looking uh, for. Uh, All right, back to Dan. Your show, Full House. <sighs> Full House. Amnesia. Who got it on Full House? Who got it on Full House? Well, I'm going to And guess. it's not the city of San Francisco, which was like a character on Full House. It really was, wasn't it? Um, <laughs> I will say, because I have no idea, I'm going to say the character that I know has the same name as me. I'm going to say Danny. That is incorrect. We were looking for Michelle Tanner. You can still get a point right. by identifying why she got amnesia. A... Was she hit on the head during the 1989 San Francisco earthquake? B, did she fall off a horse? Or C, did she lose control of her bike on a steep San Francisco hill? Oh, those steep San Francisco hills. There's got to be a better bike path. Um, why not? Let's say the San Francisco earthquake. San Francisco earthquake is incorrect. She fell off a horse. Oh. That's completely non-San Francisco related. Could What's have been she point? fell off like a sourdough, big sourdough. Or a seal. Loaf. Yeah. A big piece of garlic. <laughs> yeah. Where she was doing the horse tour of Alcatraz. Tara. Your show, Tara, is Dynasty. Mm-hmm. Who got a Nijan Dynasty? Crystal. Crystal is incorrect. It was Fallon Carrington. Fallon okay. Carrington. Did she, A, crash her car while fleeing her own wedding? B, was she pushed down the stairs during an argument with her husband, Jeff? Or C, did she get drunk and fall off the family yacht? Yacht. Yacht is incorrect. Damn it. She crashed her car <laughs> fleeing her own wedding. A lot of goose mm. eggs coming up on the show. Yeah. All right. That is round one. Let's quickly get the scores. Please start. Okay, um, Sarah has three points, Danny has one point, I have zero points. All right, we're back to it with round two. Who got stuck on an elevator? Oh, yeah. <laughs> Sarah D. Bunting, we have two people. Seventh Heaven is your show. Two people, we got stuck on the elevator. Oh, Jesus. Two people. Stuck on an elevator. elevator. Okay, I'm guessing it's not happy as himself. So I'm going to say Rev Cam and Mrs. Rev Cam. Incorrect. We were looking for Matt and Lucy Camden. Matt and Lucy Camden. Here is your bonus question. Was anyone on the elevator pregnant? Oh, my God. I mean... It has to be yes, which means that it's probably no. <laughs> but it's Sev have. Yes. Correct. Lucy hey. was pregnant. One point. Dan. Yes, sir. Trapped in an elevator, saved by the bell. Two people. Who were they? 
Saved by the Bell. Let's say Zach and Kelly Kapowski. Oh, you got yeah. I, since this is a two point, I'm going to give you one point for getting one of them. Zach and Tori is what we're looking for. Okay. Uh, was anyone pregnant? Uh, I hope not. Um, no. The answer is yes. It says Mrs. Belding. I don't understand the the relationship there. Never watched Saved by the Bell. I hope that makes sense to our home listeners. <laughs> home listeners. It doesn't have to be a relationship. Just don't get on an elevator with a pregnant lady. It's TV nice. law. Uh, or a cab. Tari Ariano. Yep. One person all in the family. Trapped on an elevator. Who was it? Edith. Edith is incorrect. <clears throat> We were looking for Archie. Okay. Was anyone pregnant? Definitely. Definitely is correct. Yay. Back <laughs> back to Sarah D. Bunting. I remember this episode. Who got stuck on an elevator on Magnum P.I.? If you recall correctly, I believe we actually discussed this episode on Extra Hot Great. Oh, yeah. Did we? Mm-hmm. Yeah. It was a canon. Mm, yep. Oh yeah, I don't. I don't remember anyone else's names though. So I'm gonna guess Magnum. Pi. Yeah, two people. And Magnum, P. that I other who? guy with the mustache. The other guy with the mustache. Well, that could be a lot of people. Everybody had a mustache on that show. We'll give okay. you one point for Magnum. The other answer was Higgins. Higgins. Right. Shit. But, you know, Ice had a mustache sometimes. DC had a mustache sometimes. Oh, yeah. Fair. It was the 80s. 80s. Mustaches for everybody. Yeah. All right. (laughs) Was anyone pregnant on the elevator? Yes. Incorrect. Only Megan and Higgins were on the elevator. No one. That one time. Okay. Dan McEachern. Beverly Hills 90210. Oh, so happy for you, Danny. Okay, well that's fine. You each have a you each got a question where you have a podcast about the show, and I don't I don't have like again with this alias edition. Um, uh, okay, I was sincerely happy <laughs> for you, fucking Danny. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> no, I'm mad at myself. Um, the because I I watched Alias. Uh, okay, I know it's uh, Brandon was one of them, and. But I'm trying to. It, it wasn't. It was Susan. Brandon and Susan is your answer, and that is worth two points. Yeah. Susan Keats was our second, and was anyone pregnant on that elevator? Oh hell yes! And I believe the baby was eventually <laughs> named Fucking Brandon. A. Correct. Yep. Named the baby Brandon, if I recall correctly. Boo! Yep. All right, this is our last question, round two for Tara. Yep. Star Trek: The Next Generation. We're looking for one person, but there's two possible answers. We'll get two different episodes with elevator oh. and trappings, or as we like to call them in Star Trek, turbo lifts. Worf. <laughs> Incorrect. Oh. We're looking for either Jordy or Captain Picard. All right. wasn't, uh, neither of those was in my top five answers. So was no. anyone on this turbo lift space pregnant? <laughs> <laughs> no. No is correct. They were not. 
in either instance. All right, that is round two. Tara, score break, please. Shit has heated up. I have two points, but Sarah and Danny are tied with five each. All right. Well done, everybody. Round three coming at you. Who got George Baileyed? Who got George Baileyed? All right. Oh, Um, sure. Sarah D. Bunting, Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. Who got George Baileyed? Who got George Baileyed? Carlton. You are correct. Two points. Nice. The follow-up question for this round is, who was the Clarence? A, Will, B, Kellogg Cornflake Lieberbaum, or C, Tom Jones as himself? Uh, if it's not Tom Jones as, itself, as himself, it should be. So, Tom Jones as himself. It's not unusual. Wow. Very nice. Sounds great. All right, Dan. Yep. Who got George Bailey on... Dallas. Uh, it's got to be JR, right? JR Ewing. You are correct. Two points. Nice. Who Damn. is the Clarence? Yeah. Dallas Cowboy Roger Staubach as himself. Joel Gray as the Angel Adam. Or C, Miss Ellie. A, Roger. B, Adam. C, Ellie. Ah. <sighs> I can't phone a friend, right? I could call my mom. She might remember. <laughs> All right. Um, uh, I'm going to say the Dallas Cowboy thing seems weird. Let's say the Dallas Cowboy, Roger Staubach. Incorrect. <laughs> famously, Joel Gray as the Angel Adam. Oh, and J.R. Boss himself. And that's how the show originally ended. That's right. <laughs> Tara Ariano. Yep. Who got George Bailey on... Angel. Angel? Incorrect. <laughs> we were looking for Cordelia. Okay. Who was the Clarence? Who guessed Wesley? Skip the Demon. Uh-huh. Doyle or right. Fred? A, Skip. B, Doyle. C, Fred. Skip. Skip is correct for one point. There you go. Was that Angel's week off? Sarah D. Bunting, who got yep. George Bailey on Night Court? Bull. Incorrect. We were looking for Harry Stone. Uh, really? I would have guessed Dan Fielding. Me too. Who oh, was yeah, Harry Stone's Clarence? Bull. Mel Torme as the angel Herb. Or Dan. Mel Torme. Mel Torme is correct for one point. Yeah. Now that you mentioned, I think I saw that one. We all saw that one. Yeah. It's a piece of TV history. (laughs) (laughs) They were all happy days. (laughs) (laughs) All right, Dan, this is question 17. Spread Spread eagle. eagle. Your show, Laverne and Shirley. Who got George Bailey on that one? Um, well, I'm going to flip a coin and <laughs> <laughs> go with Squiggy. Uh, no, um, let's say Laverne. Correct. Two points. All right. Nice. Who was the Clarence? Was it G- A, Jeff, B, Lenny, C, Fonzie? A, Jeff, B, Lenny, C, Fonzie. Jeff, as played by Jeffrey Kramer. Lenny, played by Michael McKean. 
Fonzie played by, of course, Fonzie as himself. <laughs> uh, once again, I'm going to go with the answer that I hope is true, and that's Fonzie as Fonzie. Incorrect. Ah, damn it. We were looking for Jeff. What's Jeff. a Jeff? Good old Jeff. All right, last question of round three for Tara. The show, mm-hmm. The O.C., who got George Bailey on The O.C.? Ugh. Seth. Ryan Atwood got George Bailey. Really? Yep. All right. Who was the Clarence? A. Sandy. Peter Gallagher. Yep. B. Don Atwood. Ryan's mom. Okay. C. Taylor Townsend. Autumn Reeser. Taylor. Taylor is correct for one point. That is round three. Let's get them scores again. Okay, um, I have four points now, and Sarah and Danny are still tied, but now with nine points. All right, that was our halfway mark. Oh, We're starting with round four. Who came back from the dead? Oh, Who came uh, back okay. from the dead? Sarah Sweet. D. Bunting, we'll start with you. Your show, two possible answers. Scandal. Who came back from the dead on oh, Scandal? Who didn't? Uh, yeah, that was sort of my feeling. Who came back from the dead? Um, uh, Fitz. Fitz. Correct. Answers we're looking for, and you can give answers for either of these. I'll let you choose. Maya Lewis, that's Olivia's mom, or Quinn Perkins. Which path do you want to take? Oh, yeah. Quinn, I guess. All right. Quinn. How did Quinn die? A. Pushed down the stairs. B. Shot. C. Car crash. Car crash. Car crash is incorrect. She was shot. Okay. Like that. Dan, your show, Prison Break. Who came back from the dead on Prison Break? Okay, another show that I never watched. So let's say... Hank Prison Break. <laughs> <laughs> Steel Meal. Steel Meal from Sarah D. Bunting for two points. Uh, it's Michael, right? It is Michael. Correct. You get your two Woo! points there. We're back for Dan for the follow-up. Dan, Michael <laughs> Schofield, who you now remember with perfect clarity. Of course. Yes. Died from A, brain tumor, B, poison, C, prison fight. Uh, brain tumor, poison, prison fight, prison fight. Sounds like it should be the one, but is not. Nope, brain tumor, brain tumor. As it was a tumor, it was. (laughs) (laughs) Gross. Sorry, everyone. (laughs) Tari Ariano, who came back from the dead on Dallas? Um, Jhar. What? Can you say that? JR. Oh, come on. Damn the it. Answer, I don't know anything about Bobby Ewing. <laughs> oh, God, of course. Um, was he A, yeah. pushed off a roof, B, mm-hmm. bit by a snake, Yeah. C, killed in a car crash? Car crash. Car crash is correct. One point. Oh. All right. Sarah D. Bunting, your show, Roseanne. Who came back from the dead on Roseanne? 
I don't know. I should know this, but I don't know this. Dan. Correct for two points. Yay, Dan's. <laughs> I, thought, I thought you were asking me. How did Dan die? A, car crash. B, heart attack. C, drowning. B, B, heart attack is the correct answer. Three points on that one. Ooh. Back to Dan. Maybe he'll stop grousing now. His show is 24. <laughs> Who came back from the dead on 24? Um, like, there's got to be like five or six answers to this one, right? I just got uh, one here. So even I knew this one. So I think, I think I do, too. I think I do. And, and you know how I many episodes going... of 24 I watched? Like two. <laughs> Tony. Tony is the correct answer. to How did he die? Was he shot? Did he die in a car bomb or lethal injection? A shot, B car bomb, C lethal, that's in quotes, injection. (laughs) Car bomb. I see what they did there. Car bomb is incorrect. (laughs) Correct answer, lethal injection. (laughs) Dear. All right, last question around four, Tara Ariano. The show Game of Thrones. Who came back? Oh, from come the- on. This couldn't be 90210. <laughs> All right. Yes. Game it's of Thrones. Jon Snow. Jon Snow. Jon Snow. Was he stabbed? A, stabbed. B, fell off a horse. C, incinerated by a dragon. Stabbed. 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 Correct. He was right. stabbed. All right. That is round four. Score update, please, Tara. Thank you, Dave. I have eight. Danny has 11. Sarah Debunting has 14. All right. Sarah pulling ahead. Still got two rounds of play. This is round five. Who got accidentally married? (laughs) (laughs) Starting with Sarah Debunting, your show. So we're looking for two people here. Your show, 30 Rock. Oh, gosh. Um, I still have not gotten around to watching that show, so someone should probably steal meal this for me, but let's say uh, Liz and... What's his face? Dennis Duffy? Liz and Dennis Duffy. We're going to give you one point. <laughs> oh. <okay>. For Liz <laughs> and Jack. Oh, Liz and Jack. Okay. Jack Donaghy. How did it happen? A, they accidentally find themselves at a mass wedding in Central Park. B... The priest gets confused about who is getting married. Or C, they are drunk. Um, B. B is the correct answer. Good for nice. one point for a total of two. Two points. Sing. Sing. Dan, who got accidentally married on Arrested Development? Uh, uh, George Michael and maybe. Correct for two points. How did it happen? A, a priest who is supposed to be fake turns out to be real. B, maybe wants to pretend to marry George Michael to piss off her mother, but George Michael replaces the fake marriage license with a real one. Or C, they are drunk. Uh, It's not C. So you've got A, a priest who is supposed to be fake turns out to be real. Or B, fake marriage license replaced with a real one. Uh, priest that was supposed to be fake turns out to be real. Is correct. Three points on that one. Nice. Tara. Yes. Who got accidentally married on Castle? And we're just looking for one person here. 
Since we're just talking just about main characters, what? just one main character here. Okay. Doesn't mean she got married to herself or anything like that, but we don't care about the other person, apparently. Okay. Her name is, I think, something generic and TV-ish. Kate? Yes. <laughs> Kate Beckett is correct. All right. No offense to Kate's, but it's a common name on TV. How did it happen, Tara? Uh-huh. A, Kate fills in for a sick bride at her wedding rehearsal, but she's wearing white, so the officiant thinks it's the actual ceremony. Okay. B, Kate's nemesis, Agent Shaw, bribes a county clerk to file a false marriage license. Or C, she is drunk. <laughs> B. B is incorrect. The answer was she is drunk. Oh. Good old drunk. Sarity Bunting. The show, Who's the Boss? Who accidentally got married on Who's the Boss? You're looking for two people? Yep, two people. Okay, um, Tony and Angela. You are correct. All right, how did it happen? They are declared common law married due to arcane local laws. B, they fall victim to a prank by a radio morning show host. C, they are drunk. (laughs) Uh, B. B is incorrect. We were looking for... Declared a common law married due uh, to arcane local laws. Thank you, South Carolina. Dan, your show, The Big Bang Theory. What uh, two characters got accidentally married on The Big Bang? <laughs> BBT. <laughs> BBT. God. Um, I- the Universe and... String theory. <laughs> Universe is really a character on that show. Yeah, really. Um, uh, well, sh- I think I can only think of. Okay, is there a Howard on that show? <laughs> Howard and Angela. Howard and Angela. He's the highly suggestible type. Who's the boss? Right. Not Dan's brain. <laughs> See, they were drunk. <laughs> See, oh. they were drunk. It's actually correct. <laughs> <laughs> Love it. Good for one what point. What was the correct answer? Part, oh, I'm sorry. Um, we're looking for Penny and Zach. Penny and Zach. Ah. Okay. Uh, Tar Ariano, your show, Full House. Full House. Mm-hmm. So here's the little twist. Uh, we're looking for two people, but they weren't married to each other. Okay. Um, Danny and Joey. We're looking for DJ and Jesse. Now, as I mentioned, not married to each other, but how did it happen? DJ's attempt to find wives for her uncles goes terribly wrong. B, they have preposterous cultural misunderstanding while on vacation. Or C, they were drunk. Um, (laughs) Cultural misunderstanding. Is correct for one point. (laughs) All right, moving into our final round. The scores, please, Tara. Okay, I have 11 points. Danny has 15 points. Sarah has 18 points. All right, still anybody's game here. Everybody can get an additional six points to add to their tally. Round six is who has an evil twin? Oh. All right, Sarah D. Bunny, we'll start you off. Who has an evil twin on Arrested Development? So what major character on Arrested Development has an evil twin? Um, George Bluth. He does indeed. That evil twin was Oscar. What is Oscar's distinguishing physical characteristic? 
A. Oscar has hair while George is bald. B. There are no obvious differences. C. Oscar has facial hair. A. Correct. Three points. Well done. Putting the pressure on. Dan, your show, Futurama. Evil Twin. I'm just going to make sure you understand Evil Twin, because there's lots of twins in Futurama, especially in one episode, (laughs) but they weren't inherently evil. Uh, It's been a long time since I watched Futurama. Um, Is there an Angela? Pardon me wants to say Bender. No, Uh, let's say Fry. Fry is incorrect. We were looking for Bender. I was going to say Bender, but I was like... Flexo. But wouldn't Bender's twin be good? So I, I got hung up on that. Anyway. All yes. right. Flexo. It's distinguishing physical characteristics of Flexo. That's what we're looking for now. A. Flexo is rusty around the joints. B. Flexo has a soul patch. C. Flexo has two antennae instead of one. Soul patch. Soul patch is the correct answer. One point. Little magnetic soul patch, right? Yep. That's correct. Aww. Yep. Tara. The show I Dream of Genie. Who has an evil twin? Genie. Correct. How do we tell Genie apart from Genie? She's got dark hair. All right. <laughs> also wears green instead of pink, but evil Genie is also a brunette when uh, Genie yeah. is uh, blonde. So I remembered the green and the different color part, but not the different color hair part. Interesting. Yeah. Thank you to Kimberly for uh, providing both those items. Yeah, green instead of pink and brunette instead of blonde. All right, so three points for you there, Tara. Sarah D. Bunting, your last question of the game. Your show, Friends. Who has an evil twin on Friends? Phoebe. Phoebe is correct. That would be Ursula. Distinguishing physical characteristics of Ursula. There are no obvious differences. A. B. Ursula's eyes are a different color. C. Ursula has a tattoo of her own name and a heart. These all sound incredible, but I think it's A. A, no obvious differences, is in fact correct. Three points. I hope you're proud of me, Tara. I'm very proud. <laughs> Dan McEachern, your show with two possible answers. Who has an evil twin on Knight Rider? <laughs> Don't let me down. I'm, I'm going to go with the answer that I like the best, because I think one of the possible answers has got to be Kit, right? Yep. <laughs> Kit's evil twin was Sarah. Car. Car, or two R's, yes. The other answer we would have accepted was Michael and Garth. Of course. Hi. Garth with an E. Yeah, Garth with an E, correct. All right, so you answered car, so we'll do the car path. What is right. the distinguishing physical characteristic of car? A, car's front lights were yellow instead of red. B, car is silver instead of black. C, car has truck nuts. <laughs> uh, okay, so A, front lights, different color. B, body, different it's color. A. A. C, truck nuts. It's A, the front lights, a different color. You are correct. That will give you three points. Uh, Sarah debunting without me doing the uh, multiple choices. What was Garth's uh, physical distinguishing characteristic? Um, blow dried soul patch, motherfucker. <laughs> yeah, he had all that facial hair. Indeed. He also right. talked like Timothy Oliphant and Justified before <laughs> Timothy oh. Oliphant. So, yeah. Okay, last question of the game for Tara Ariano. 
your show, Jane the Virgin. Who is an evil twin on Jane the Virgin? Petra. Petra does indeed. All right. Anishka is the evil twin. Mm-hmm. Anishka has a scar over one eye. That's A. B, Anishka is brunette instead of blonde. C, Anishka has a nose ring. Uh, brunette. Brunette instead of blonde is correct. And that is good for three points. Tari Ariano, can we please get the scores here at the end of regulation? Yes, sir. I finished with 17 points. Danny had 19 points. Sarah Bunting, 24. Ooh, nicely <laughs> done. All right. Sarah uh, wins. We are now in a four to four to three situation moving into next week. So two people can win next week. Getting very, very tight. Here's how it works. I'm going to read a bunch of things. And then I'm going to tell you some more information. First person to shout out the correct answer wins the steel mill. Here we go. Whitley Gilbert from A Different World. Mr. Spacely from The Jetsons. Frank Reynolds from It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia. Oscar Madison from The Odd Couple. Alex P. Keaton from Family Ties. And Roseanne from Roseanne. All filled in as this role in this off-repurposed holiday tale. Scrooge. Scrooge. Scrooge Danny is correct. All right, Sarah D. Bunting, congratulations. It's getting tight, and it's four to four to three. Moving into next week. Sarah. 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 <laughs> also, Sarah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, guys. That is it for another episode of Extra Hot Great. We reserve 20 column inches for the BBC newspaper Neighbors Drama Press before pressing on to Around the Dial, where Tara tackled evil. Yep, is your problem. Someone <laughs> set this thing to evil. Dan shot off his big <laughs> mouth, and Sarah took a cash cab. We pitch ideas for new Fosse Verdon-esque limited bio series, and Dan successfully pitched the Grinders, Grinder v. Grinder, for the canon. We crowned winners and losers of the week, and Sarah Debunting was the winner of this week's Familiar Situations Game Time. Remember, we're listening. I am David T. Cole, and on behalf of Tara Airby and O. Never thought he'd see the day. Sarah D. Bunting. Wow, dude. Now we do have to have a whole fake trial about it? I bunged that line. Sorry, I'm not taking coding. <laughs> and Daniel McEachern. See, they were drunk. Thanks for listening, everybody. And I'll see you next time, right here on Extra. Oh, great. Is this the stupidest thing I've ever been a part of? I think it might be. It's up there.